Hello, hello, listeners to the Third Way podcast. I, uh, I'm fascinated by fear. Uh, you know, when you grow up in a traumatic childhood and you grow up in fundamentalism, you know, fear is a as a tool that is used against you consciously or unconsciously. And um, I have stopped trying to defeat fear, though, understanding that we need at least some element of it to proceed in life. And I've begun to understand that, trying to understand fear, be curious about it. And so part of that journey actually led me in a very roundabout way to today's guest. I'm joined today by Gareth Higgins. Gareth is, well, this is one of those things when you, labels are so useless. I would describe Gareth as a mystic. He may not agree with that title, but it's my show. No. Uh, so uh, I just think that, you know, saying author or, or um, speaker or thinker is just not enough to describe him. But anyway, um, I found Gareth's book, How, How Not to Be Afraid. Um, I don't know when it was. It was a while ago, and it, it was a, earlier this year. And it's transformative. And we'll get into why that is in just a second. But Gareth splits his time between Belfast and, and Northern Ireland and uh, Asheville, North Carolina, and is today joining from Belfast. Welcome, Gareth. Hi, Justin. Great to, to be here. And don't want to start on a discordant note, but let's argue about what mystic means before, <laughs> before we go any further. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Well, maybe maybe not argue. Maybe we'll have a vigorous discussion. Sure, sure. Well, it, like it's 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 funny. I I mystic is one of those words like artist, you know, um that that it can be a descriptive word and you it doesn't necessarily mean you're a good mystic or a good artist. Um right. or that uh you know, politician is is another one and right. the media is an is another phrase they're, they're terms that get used either to elevate or denigrate people yeah. and so you know when people say things like oh you know politicians are all this yeah. that or the other um and really you need an adjective in front of the politician yes. you could say you know a politician who lacks integrity yeah. or a politician who is sincerely committed to the the common good um i think mystic is a descriptive term and anybody who uh, would say, oh, yes, I'm definitely a mystic. That's probably a, a piece of evidence. They might not yet be yes, a mystic. Um, yes. And um, I was recently part of something I was I was uh, honored and, and, and grateful to be invited to participate in something called a mystics summit. Mm -hmm. And I thought this is paradoxical because the whole point of mysticism is not to be on the summit. Um, the whole point of mysticism is to go down deep into yourself, into, yep. into, you know, the kind of subterranean spiritual realm and discover more humility mm -hmm. there. So to call something a mystics summit uh, seemed paradoxical. Yes. And at the same time, a lot of the people who we call mystics who left written records behind literally lived on the top of mountains yeah. <laughs> or they lived in caves and, yeah. and you know the summit was not about becoming elite or egotistical or to win awards yeah. uh, so it's a semantic argument to one degree I, I i would i would conclude inconclusively by saying i once heard uh, a guy speaking at a festival saying that he wanted to talk about mysticism and you've said I'm allowed to use 
profanity on this show and and uh i i i i you know and again profanity is in the eye of the beholder so yeah. i'm just going to use a word that's a nice adjective uh, uh, <laughs> as or and I, I yeah i don't know if it's an adjective or just a, a strengthener uh and uh in this term i don't consider it profane in this context but this guy was saying he he'd been talking to a friend in a pub about he was going to give a talk about mysticism and his friend said what the fuck mm-hmm. is mysticism <laughs> and this guy said he thought about it and any and he realized maybe one way to put it would be a mystic is someone who has met god yeah i might i don't know i might kind of tweak that a little bit and say a mystic is someone who has met god or who knows they need to yes so and it's available to everybody it's not a mark of character or a badge of 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 elitism everyone is a mystic everyone's a mystic we're half animal half angel if you will yeah so everyone's a mystic um also, like you said, it's not a self-gloss to use a sports term. You cannot call yourself a mystic. Like you can't say you're a guru. Mm-hmm. All, uh, what I hear when I hear I'm a mystic, I'm a guru, <laughs> I'm, a th- I'm a thought leader, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I basically yeah. just take whatever the word they're using and just put an yeah, asshole yeah. or insecure. It's <laughs> both insecure asshole. That's what I am, which I've been there some days. Yesterday, on one moment, I was an insecure asshole. Um, my definition of a mystic is someone that receives something they did not create. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And when I, so, so segueing into the book and this is one of those things, there's a few books like this, the book, um, the art of silence by uh, Pablo de Ors, um, mm. all of David White's stuff for me. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of Stephen Pressfield. I, I could sit and just highlight the entire book. Mm. And so I look through and, and your book, I happen to read as an ebook on Kindle, um, mm-hmm. but there's these little nuggets, um, mm-hmm. thousands of them in your book, mm-hmm. which that's why I use the term mystic. Cause it's not like you sat down and you're like, look how brilliant I am. I'm writing all this down that I came up with. You're just channeling and you can read it. Here's mm-hmm. one. Spirituality is our living relationship with mystery. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so good. Well, that's just called um, quoting. <laughs> because <laughs> that's I don't know that didn't that. come from me I'm, I'm i'm quoting a a fellow called steven sunborg um so um, well maybe that one because i can't tell because i'm just looking at the highlights the, the highlight <laughs> in the, in the Kindle app. um then there was another one that says uh the way you tell the story about your world will co-create that world yeah. i mean just in the and so in your book you break down you know kind of this interesting kind of trichotomy you you break down the the neuroscience of fear and then you break down kind of the psychology of fear um which i would put neuroscience of fear is like biological fear the fear that keeps us alive you know keeps us from being eaten or kicked out of the tribe then you have psychological fear which is sort of existential fear which is sort of a middle class uh flu (laughs) and then you have um then you have like almost like a spiritual fear um a a fear of a lack of meaning um, and you frame it in growing up, um, growing up in a, in a war while also having to, or feeling a need to keep secret who you really were. Mm-hmm. 
in that process. And I resonate that read very different, very different backgrounds and everything, but I, both of those resonated with me so deeply. It makes me want to cry of what it's like to grow up in violence and not be able to be who you really are. I think, I think we can handle one of those, but to handle two of those and come out yeah. of it on the other side, not completely fucked up is, is remarkable. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. well, um, I think, I think all of us have a, have a war of some kind in our lives, particularly in our childhoods. And, um, uh, and I'm, and I'm, I'm actually hesitant about using the word war to describe what happened in, in and about Northern Ireland and the North of Ireland. Uh, it, it, it certainly Violence, meets the, yeah, at least. It, yeah, it meets the sociological definition of a civil conflict. Um, not a civil war, but, you know, again, these are semantic distinctions. We did have uh, a, a conflict that took the lives of many thousands of people and physically injured many thousands more and traumatized hundreds of thousands of people. And it cleaved itself right down the middle of our society. And its roots are at least 800 years old. But the last 25 years in particular uh, have seen an astonishing process of negotiated transformation and a massive reduction in violence and increase in collaboration and and uh, all centered on the question of consent and I think this actually is the heart of where a lot of our fears come from is that our consent is going to be violated that other people are going to do things to us that we can't stop them from doing uh, a lot of the fear that I experience is to do with people who have uh, political positions that could hurt me if those positions were entrenched or and if we didn't if we couldn't find a way for us all to belong without hurting other people mm. i think one of the things that manifested in this divided society in in the north of ireland was that belonging got defined as you need to suffer in order for me to belong to my group you know my group's uh, existence depends on your group being diminished or uh, what they call a zero-sum game. If if one side has a gain, the other one has to have a loss. Um, and, you know, to some degree, that's kind of like childish, a childish stage of development that all humans kind of face and we maybe never transcend it. Although there's an irony in that I think children know things that adults don't know. Um, and paradoxically, adults taught them these things that they themselves had, the adults had forgotten. Examples would be share what you have. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Don't steal your friend's food if you're sitting at the school lunch table. Um, yes, I know he's being a bit of a bully, but there are really difficult things going on in his home. And so, yes, we want to protect you from the bullying, but he's not a monster, you know, he, there's, and we'd like to help his family. Those are sort of the sort of things that in an ideal world, children grow up knowing that parents transmit that uh, information and teaching to them. But then something seems to happen in our current political cultures, which is no, don't share what you've got, hold on to what you've got for dear life. In fact, take from your neighbor before they take from you. And he's a monster. And I don't care what happened uh, that hurt him. I don't, you know, and of course that I'm using hyperbole. Mm -hmm, of course. There's, there's very few people who would actually say those words out loud. Okay. I'm talking about what the structures in our society try to drive us yes. uh, to do. And I grew up in a society where we were 
having a very loud, dangerous, lethal fight with each other. And at mm -hmm. the same time, there was a conservative religious uh, mm -hmm. permeation of the culture that hurt and repressed and restricted people who that vision of the world didn't make room for. I was one of those people because I was growing up as a, as a person who didn't understand my sexual orientation, didn't understand um, what would then have been called homosexuality. It certainly wasn't called bisexuality. We didn't have a concept of LGBTQ. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and in the world I inhabited, gay people didn't even exist. There was just straight people. And then there were straight people who were confused. Uh, and um, so you had that. But at the same time, there were people building peace and there were people making space for creativity and for a, um, a more kaleidoscopic understanding of our humanity. And I think this is what's always going on. Yep. It just sometimes is a matter of chance who you end up bumping into and who ends up becoming your mentors and who ends up opening doors mm -hmm. for you. I think uh, one last thing before we get into the, the questions, because I think there's some good yeah. nuggets in the answers to the questions, uh, but I think what we are dealing with, and I think war or violence in general, violence is the inevitable result of uh, low conscious masculinity given power, mm. given weapons, that's to me. And then low conscious masculinity is able to be uh, it, it will be sustained from low conscious feminine, feminine the low conscious feminine. Mm. And so my, uh, my partner, Virginia is from Central America and she talks, <clears throat> she's, she's the president of the one of the largest, maybe the largest um, women's rights organizations in South in Latin America. Mm. And mm -hmm. she points out that the machisto culture that leads to, you know, Central America in particular, having the highest femicide rate in the world is perpetuated by, in my words, low conscious feminine. The machisto culture that degrades women is sustained mm. by social conditioning. Um, mm. uh, and so, but like you said, um, you know, it's based, well, you didn't say this, but it's essentially, it seems like we're all just pinging off of each other's fears. Mm. And then, um, and that seems to be part of the human condition mm -hmm. um, and, and, and a realization at some point um, like some of the stories you told in your book that there's enough people in power that go, wait a minute, we don't, it doesn't have to be this way, but so like we could go on and on about that. Um, I, but I want to talk about fear and, you know, the name of your book is how not to be afraid. And that's the topic as well. And so the first question that I had thrown out um, was, these are my terms, not yours. So just to, you know, but so you can rename them, of course, uh, but there's this discernment between trauma-based fear and hardwired fear. And for the listeners, trauma-based fear to me is like disruptions to the neuroplasticity caused by, caused by acts of violence or chronic physical, emotional abuse or sexual abuse. That's trauma-based fear. And then hardwired fear is just like situational awareness um, uh, and the, the instinct to, to got us to the top of the food chain. That's kind of what I would say hardwired fear. So I'm curious, when you think about how not to be afraid, mm -hmm. how do you discern those two? If someone is a trauma survivor and they're a mammal, um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you discern those and how do you approach each of those kinds of fears differently? Yeah, well, um, I think that's a beautiful and really important question because I think like 
there are there are folks for whom this book I I, I hope can help. Um, one of the ways I hope it can help people is to validate traumatic fear. Yeah. And for people to, I, I would hope that people whose fear has come through trauma can can read it and feel like, ah, I feel seen or, I, you know, I see I'm not the only one. The last thing I want is for people to read it and feel more guilty about their fear or guilty that they haven't somehow transcended their fear or that their fear hasn't been healed. Um, mm -hmm. It seems to me that there are, while I, I believe there's, uh, someone put it to me the other day, there's no ceiling to what the soul is capable of receiving, um, that our, our temporal lives here in these bodies, uh, whether, whether there's an, you know, whether there's an eternal life or not, who knows, but, um, I tend to think that there's, there's, there's something that's beyond our capacity to describe and it's all love. But while we're here in these frames with these limitations, there's some things that we're, we're going to uh, be invited to learn to manage better, but we're not necessarily going to transcend them or, or heal them. You know, my, my sister has been uh, diabetic since she was about nine years old. She's 43 now, and she's going to be on insulin injections for the rest of her life. And that's going to keep her alive. And her diabetes, unless a cure is found, is not going to be cured. And there's no shame in that, <laughs> right? She didn't do anything to create the diabetes. Uh, it's been a burden for her. She has to manage it. Hopefully people help her manage it. Mm -hmm. A little bit like that with, with some of our traumas, that maybe it can actually be a liberation for some of us to know, not so much there's no hope, because that's not what I'm saying at all, but if you haven't transcended your traumatic fear, if you haven't cured or healed your traumatic fear, you're okay. There's nothing wrong with you. In fact, the trauma and the fear and the wounds that you've carried are part of the raw material from which you get to co-create a new life. Um, I don't think I know anybody whose experience of healing from trauma is such that they never think about their trauma or that they never get triggered. I think that I do know some people who are learning and have learned through practice and through receiving healing from other people when they get triggered to turn that trigger into being triggered into the present instead of being triggered into the past or triggered into a fearful future to be triggered into, Oh, I'm feeling this almost like, you know, if, a if I, if I, ste I stepped on a cactus once in a, with, a, with a bare foot, it was walking around a, a house in New Zealand in the dark and a cactus had fallen onto the floor and I stepped on the cactus and the cactus embedded itself in my foot. <laughs> and then, of course, it had to be pulled out. And the person I was with at the time had to pull it out. And we, we, had to, we sat there for a, a few seconds going, OK, do you, do you pull it out quickly or do you pull it out slowly? And we started to pull it out slowly and that was worse. But my foot really felt alive. I'll tell you that. Yeah. My foot really felt alive by being uh, uh, pricked like like that. So um, I do think that that there are ways we can learn uh, that are uh, to be triggered into the present. Yeah. To be triggered into waking up and to be like, wow, wow, I'm I'm being hit by this pain, by this memory of pain, and I can look out the window and I can. Right now, I'm looking at Belfast Law. And I can and I can have all these positive associations with Belfast Lock. And one of them is just it's beautiful to look at. It's beautiful to look at. And I'm looking at I'm also pendulating between that. And I'm remembering, yeah, I'm, I'm currently feeling a little tiny bit triggered just because I'm talking to you about this, you know, uh, 
hypothetically triggered. So that's the first thing is that that um, trauma and what you I think what did you call hardwired fear, um, two different things. Yeah, uh, yeah. And to distinguish between the two, um, uh, I mean, there are good trauma therapists out there that can can yeah, help yeah. us. It was a it was a big moment for me when a trauma therapist was able to clinically help me see, oh, Gareth, you know, that's totally normal, but it's also a traumatic mm-hmm. wound. Mm-hmm. It's totally normal for you to feel this way about it. And it shouldn't have happened. And you're not responsible for why it happened to you. Hardwired fear. Um, well, we can look at biology and we can look at evolution mm-hmm. and we can see that uh, in some kind of uh, almost ethereal way, hardwired fear and traumatic fear are related to each other. Cause I can imagine if I was a prehistoric caveman being chased by a saber toothed tiger, that would probably be a traumatic experience, right? Yeah. But what has been I evolutionarily. Yeah. yeah. I wonder about that though, because you know, you trauma is about comparison. Trauma is about comparison. You know, I, I, in, in the sense that the mind, the association that the mind cannot only can only reference the past. It can't, there's no, you know, it does project into the future, but mm-hmm, it's you know, mm-hmm. most of the time. And, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist nor a trauma therapist, but having delved in deeply into my own healing and then study, you know, talk to many people that are experts in this field is that I think part of it is that we, we compare our lives to other people that we perceive haven't experienced trauma or had a different kind of trauma. Mm-hmm. But if you're being chased by a saber-toothed tiger, so is everybody else. Mm-hmm. You know, and and maybe 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 it's more that neuro, maybe it's more the hardwiring is is reinformed, like oh that might kill me. Mm. Um, but I, I think one of the nuances though is well, the reason I ask this question is because similar, very similar, and it gave me the chills when you said it, is when you had this moment when your therapist was able to discern that for you that you were okay and this was normal, mm-hmm. this kind of you know, trauma based fear, is. If you can recognize its source, you're in control. Mm-hmm. You've already begun the process of control, meaning control sure. like uh, maybe a gentler word would be witness. You're in the witness mm-hmm. chair mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, I'm having a trauma response to this. And then I go to the next thing down, which is, is it because of a story? Mm-hmm. Um, is the projector screen, what's on the projector screen? That's the visualization I do. What's on the projector screen? Okay. It's a story. Okay. It's, it can only be a story of association. Mm -hmm. That's all it can be like, or is there a key piece of data that shows that it's a PTSD response, Mm -hmm. which is more about the nervous system Mm -hmm. and the the nervous system. Then it's all about like being super gentle. And we talk Mm -hmm. about self-care somewhat casually now, but like truly like holding that wounded child whose nervous system was was damaged at the in the moment and holding them and giving them what they didn't get at that time mm-hmm. and what an honor to be able to do that for yourself mm-hmm. and to me that's that discernment hardwired fear i'm just grateful for sure you know i have adhd i'm an eight in the enneagram i was in another life i was probably like some sort of like viking warrior like i got <laughs> that i got that blood i got that that aggressor blood <laughs> uh and that so it makes me super situationally aware mm-hmm. and 
people generally feel safe around me because they know that I'm paying attention to all of those details. I am completely fine with that fear because it doesn't own my ass. Mm -hmm. Trauma-based fear used to own my ass. I didn't even know it. It's like Jung said, you know, that it, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will govern you and you will call it fate. Um, mm -hmm. You know, very similar to that. So, Well, people are generally not taught these things. And so while I don't think I have a comprehensive or a, you know, a one-shot answer to how do you tell the difference between trauma-based fear and hardwired fear, I do think we're living in a time where people are starting to talk about these kinds of things more. And the best thing that we can do is twofold. One is to learn to breathe more slowly, even for one minute a day. Yes. Whatever your spiritual beliefs may or may not be, mm -hmm. to just slow down your breathing for one minute. And the other is to uh, participate in circles of um, between three to eight people uh, who are asking meaningful questions of each other about what it is to be alive, uh, what's meaningful, and what are we called to. And the book kind of outlines it, you know, yeah. an outline of how people can do that. There's lots of ways to do it. But um, one of the ways we do it is we ask four questions. Hmm. The first one is, what's something that's life-giving to you since we last met? Mm -hmm. And the second question is, what's something that's not life-giving to you since we last met? And the reason we ask, and we ask people to like limit it to one thing, right? Yep. Um, the reason we put it that way is because how you doing is not a question that elicits a rich, profound, right. life-giving response for the most part. But hey, what's something life-giving since we last met? And what's something not life-giving since we last met? It covers the bases. It helps people who tend to be negative to at least find one thing that's redemptive. It helps people who tend to be you know, too positive or what do they call it, toxic positivity to at least name a challenge to. And we really do get to know each other better along the way. The other mm -hmm. two questions we ask are, what's the new story you feel called to live between now and when we next meet? Uh, and that's to do with, you know, people ask, are things getting better or worse in the world? And the answer is, it depends on your perspective. It depends on the power that you have. It depends on which particular issues you're, 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 you're looking at. Um, I'm more interested in the question, am I getting better or worse in relation to the story around me? And I don't mean, am I becoming more and more like the Terminator is, you know, am I, am I, is my body becoming more and more like someone who would win an Olympic competition, unless that's what I'm called to. What I mean is, is my capacity to be authentically the person that I'm here to be a full human, mm -hmm. as far as my beliefs are concerned, made in the image of God or made in the image of love. Mm -hmm. whose calling is to be in interdependent relationship with all other living beings, human, human beings and everything else uh, to serve from the gifts that I have and to ask for help from the place of the lack that I have. Um, right. Am I getting more or less like that in relation to the story around me? There are things I uh, can make a big impact on there's things I can make a small impact on there are things I can pray that somebody else will make a positive impact on and there's many things I don't understand right. at all um I do think I understand I'm just one person right and look, yeah and so are you and so are right. we all right yeah that's very interesting because I think like the check-in for me related to fear in particular is 
um, what's affecting my presence. Mm. Um, and the other one is, is around the, um, what am I, what, 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 where's my energy coming from? Mm -hmm. I'm very aware that I've got a significant amount of what I call aggressor image, uh, energy. And mm -hmm. it's somewhat related to the constant pursuit of dopamine because mm -hmm. you have ADHD, part of it is you don't produce enough dopamine. Mm -hmm. um, so, all right, second question of thousands I actually have, but we're only gonna do three today, <laughs> is uh, do, you, does, do you think the soul feels fear? I have no idea. Um, <laughs> I I know that the sole of my foot felt fear when it stood on that cactus. Ah, good one. Good um, dad joke. I, <laughs> um, uh, but I, I, I think that the, um, I have experienced, I think you have too, I think many of us have experienced things that can't be described as, that, that, that seem not to be able to be limited to just uh, synapses firing in the brain. Mm -hmm. And maybe the synapses firing in the brain were designed this way to enable us to believe and experience something beyond. Um, I think that the great spiritual wisdom teachers in all wisdom traditions don't deny suffering, don't deny fear. I think that, you know, the tradition that I'm closest to, the Christian tradition, Jesus clearly experienced fear. Yes. And distress. Right. Uh, loss, grief, mm -hmm. you know, um, not just because the text of scripture says that, but because the, the, the tradition and the doctrine that says Jesus was fully human would not be true if Jesus didn't experience those right. emotions. And I feel tremendous comfort in the notion that spiritual wisdom figures felt these things as well. And that right. the absence of God is part of, is part of spiritual growth or the, 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 the felt absence of God, the mm -hmm. perception that God is absent. Yeah. Um, and then there are people who, it has been given to them to learn that absence is an opportunity for presence. Like I was saying earlier, but I can be triggered into the present um, while having a painful memory. I can still look at the, the, the loch in front of me. Uh, uh, I can still be aware of here. I am having a conversation with another human being who I've never met before in another part of the world, both of us trying to feel our way to something good. Yes. Not just for ourselves, but hopefully for whoever's listening that, you know, hopefully this is of help as well. And we'd love to be in conversation with them too. So does the soul feel fear? I don't, I don't know much about the soul. I do know that not feeling fear is not necessarily a sign of spiritual growth. It might be a sign of denial. Yes. And that plenty, plenty of people who have found something incredibly deep and rich spiritually in their lives, plenty of people, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, who've done that have also talked about the suffering that they've experienced too. Wow. I, leave, I think we, again, we're dichotomous, maybe trichotomous creatures. We'll say dichotomous mm. for now in mm. that we are, we, we are, we are mammals with a neocortex 
you know, um, a, a, you know, that allows us to have an awareness of our own mm-hmm. uh, place on the map, um, which, you know, we have a set of things. I'll be posting amusing about this in the next couple of days about there's a set of like eight things that are distinctly human and they're not there by accident, you know, so they're not just right. because to get to the top of the food chain. Mm. Anyway, so there is that and fear and all the stuff we've been talking about if fear is that and then we're a soul. And this is my kind of working thesis on this is I don't believe the soul does fear. I think we fear. I arrive at this conclusion from two things. This one is that the people that, the people that, um, that were the nearest to death, both have described the same thing. So Nelson Mandela in solitary confinement, Viktor Frankl mm-hmm. in a concentration camp, mm-hmm. Hurricane Carter in, uh, Italy, you know, mm-hmm. injusticely uh, convicted, person after person after person that's in those situations uh john mccain admiral stockdale you know in vietnam that many Mm -hmm. others they report that there's a place inside of us that is unbreakable Mm -hmm. and on the other end is you have the near-death experience um records and there are some that are written by people that were hardcore atheists scientists doctors and they report basically this, that everything is okay. Mm-hmm. And if everything is okay, there's nothing to fear, which is why it's, mm-hmm. it's probably some variation of it of 172 times in the Bible. Mm-hmm. To me, we're not going to be afraid. In fact, if you look at the, when Jesus said, be not afraid, you look at the original like Aramaic translation, it more accurately translates to there is no, there is no reason to fear. Yeah. It acknowledges that we fear, but there's no reason to fear. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to be afraid of. It's more like the comfort from a spiritual teacher saying there's nothing to fear. I find that liberating. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean you can kind of have this like, you know, fuck it and do whatever you want. And, you know, fuck the fear, you know, all that kind of no fear. I don't believe in any of that. I think we're supposed to fear. I think fear keeps us alive. I think mm-hmm. fear puts us in a direction that, you know, mm-hmm. but at the end of it all, there's nothing to be afraid of. So mm-hmm. if we are using fear as a limiter of experience, mm-hmm. it, it owns us and we are not to be owned by anything. In my opinion, we are meant to be liberated creatures and if fear owns us. I guarantee you this too. If we fear someone is using that fear against us mm-hmm. in a relationship, in a job, in a country, they're, they are you because if you allow yourself to be controlled by your own fear, someone else is using that against you. In my very passionate and strong opinion, <laughs> <laughs> it feels credible to me, and I think you're right. Oh, that, right. Like it's not you know we get we can feel a punishment from maybe traditions we grew up with that that almost told you know told us off if you felt afraid and um, but. I, I think you put it beautifully. It's more like it's saying, like when a parent would say to a, a frightened child, "That's right." You, you don't no, There's no need to be afraid. I will protect you. Right. Also, there's no need to be afraid. Can be a parent saying that to a child, even if there is a reason to be afraid, because yeah. you're trying to protect the child from the from the trauma of the fear. Why would you make things worse? Uh, that you know, by by generating further sense of panic, you know, if not if the if the parents not going to do anything about the fear when they're able to, that's that's another uh, uh, matter. But I think about that lovely uh, 
scene. In fact, it's repeated three times, I think, in, in Spielberg's film Bridge of Spies, when Mark Rylance's character uh, is in conversation with Tom Hanks, and Tom Hanks is a lawyer. Mark Rylance is about to go on trial for espionage that, and could be executed as a result. And um, uh, <laughs> Tom Hanks says to Mark Rylance after he outlines for him the possible consequences of a guilty conviction, he then says, you don't look worried and mark rylance says would it help <laughs> yes, yes. So. well the yeah the last question is kind of one of those it, it's it's really born of curiosity uh while these are but is is there a new practice one one new practice or ritual that you've discovered as it relates to I say managing fear, not really the yeah. right term, but sure, sure. Um, you know, you, you're on a journey. It's not like you wrote it all down. You got it all figured out. Uh, you know, you're on a journey. It's, it's unfolding. It's like I said, the art of unfinishing mm -hmm. I'm on a journey. I'm learning new things about fear and my psyche and my soul every day. So I'm curious about one thing, one new yeah. practice or ritual yeah. you have related to fear. Well, it can't, I can't reduce it to one. <laughs> but it's all sort of of a piece and i've already named part of it and and but if, if i were to reduce it to one i would say uh um don't do the same thing you've always been doing uh, uh if if you're stuck in fear allow for the possibility that that there might be something different there i, I remember reaching a point of you know sort of despair around um the, the 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 words that occurred to me were i've tried everything and none of it works right i've tried everything and none of it works and then it occurred to me actually i haven't tried everything because in order for me to try everything i would need to know what everything is mm -hmm. and even i even i am willing to acknowledge i don't know what everything is so first of all i haven't tried everything and the second thing was i thought about the stuff that i've tried i'm not sure i had actually really tried it you know um uh not comprehensively enough to be able to say that does or that doesn't work mm -hmm. so allow for the possibility there's something there that you haven't tried yet and then if i was to to specify recommendations uh it's threefold one is learning some breathing practices that slow down your breathing and some of those are in the book and they're widely available elsewhere trauma trauma related breathing practices there's some breathing practices that are maybe not so good for trauma. So, you know, be careful how you, how you look into that. The second is we call them porch circles. I don't care what you call them. And I'm not really even that worried about what questions you use, but, but in, in conversation with two or more other people, so at least three people, not just a dialogue, at least three people, uh, start delving deep into stuff like what's life giving, what's not life giving, what's the story you feel called to live. How can you get better in relation to the story in the world? And then the last question we always ask is, uh, what help can we offer each other? Mm -hmm. That's the second piece. And then the third and, and last piece is, have a look at what I call your information diet, the mm -hmm. sources of stories in your life, from the obvious ones of uh, uh, TV and the internet and other media forms, 
through to the maybe less obvious ones like your grandparents if you still have grandparents or even if they're gone the the stories you learned from them they they may well have been wise ones they may not have been the the political cultures that you inhabit whatever side of the political spectrum you find yourself on from left to right Mm -hmm. Uh, the people who you are friends with the billboards that you are confronted by what is your information diet and then imagine if you were to transform that information diet into a wisdom diet in the same way that you know a lot of us know things about nutrition if you were to transform the typical u.s american mainstream diet into a diet that is good for the body which also in the words of a a dear friend of mine nance pettit who's among many other things she's she's a wise uh, she's got wisdom about nutrition she said to me that the best food is a virtuous circle i was i grew up in a culture that said that the best food tasted the worst um or was the least (laughs) or was the least interesting you know like eat your vegetables as a as this didn't come from my parents this was just in the culture um, but what Nance says is actually the best, the food that is the best for the body is the best looking food. It's the most colorful. It's the most interesting to prepare to cook it. It's the tastiest. When you eat it, your body feels the best, right? right. So if we were to take our information diet and do the same thing to it that we would want to do to a nutrition diet and turn it into a wisdom diet, mm-hmm. what would be the practices you would need to adopt? And that really, that comes down to literally, you know, are there times in the day when you do not have your phone somewhere on your body? <laughs> um, what news sources are you looking at? How often? Mm-hmm. What kind of books are you reading? What kind of movies are you watching? What kind of conversations are you having? How often are you outdoors? So that's that's three things that are all part of one thing. The three things are breathe more slowly, form communities where you can ask the right questions and transform your information diet into a wisdom diet. Mm-hmm. Uh, all wrapped up in this idea that it may be that there are some things you haven't tried yet that you're not aware of, or it's time to give them another shot. Yeah, that's super helpful. I think for me, a recent learning related to regulating fear is, um, it seems as if, as our consciousness grows, our systems need to change. Uh, our systems, the way we do things, and you look at it from an axiological structure of intrinsic, extrinsic, and systemic. Now, we have an over-reliance sometimes on systems, you know, especially the masculine mind. We really, you know, like like order and whatnot. Um, But I think often what's happening for me is that fear is pinging, pinging off some sort of change that needs to happen, not a change that has happened. Um, And and, and again, it's the, the I can't remember the, um, the his first name's Gavin, but he has a book called The Gift of Fear. And mm-hmm. he talks about mm-hmm. this idea that, you know, if we see fear as a gift, not necessarily trauma-based fear yeah. as a gift, because uh, that's its own discussion. But anyway, it's like, so, so I think I examine like, okay, where is something in my systems that I need to change? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe I need to change, you know, so nutrition or information is a system, is a systemic thing. 
So maybe that's the tweak. Gatherings in the sense of you have to invite people and you have to host them and they use time and resources. They're pretty systemic. Mm-hmm. Um, and but usually it's micro tweaks to the system. Mm. And that's, that's one thing. And, and then fears. The other one is the source of fear. Where's mm. the source, like the root. And what I've learned is ch- trying to chase away or justify or explain away the surface fear is a waste of time. Most of the mm. time, mm-hmm. it, because if I look around and I'm not in danger, then then it has to be either existential or trauma-based fear. Um, I'm not in any active trauma situation. Therefore, it's probably existential. There's a 90% chance it's existential fear, which means I'm making that shit up unconsciously. And so when I understand that, then I can look at my body. And I'll tell you an example here as we close. I have dealt with in my, because most of my fears and traumas are related to rejection and like relationship trauma. Not, you know, I had physical trauma as a child, but a lot of it was just, it was processed as rejection um, by my by my mother in particular, and we've since reconciled and have a beautiful relationship. So you know miracles. It produces what is called a combination of ADHD and PTSD called RSD, rejection sensitivity dysphoria. I don't know if you've heard of that, but it is it is it's a struggle. It's a hard thing to deal with. But I've learned to really regulate it. RSD hits me in my belly button, right in my belly button. That's where I feel it. And I get nauseous and this twisting, like it literally feels like a cold hand is twisting my guts. Um, but the, last week I was feeling um, fear, but I was feeling it in my solar plexus. And I was like, wow, there's, and I started to go into all my mechanisms. There's nothing to be afraid of. There's, you know, there, you know, what's the story? It's like, no, 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 no. Wait a minute. That's at a different spot in my body. What that is, is a threat alert. That's a gift as well. It's a threat. I'm like, oh, what's the threat? What's a threat right now? And I started to make an inventory and then boom, it hit me. A threat in primarily in the in my in my partnership and, and my with my stepson and then my my older grown sons and you know, but in the current like housing like of my partner Virginia and Andre, our, my son, my stepson, what's the threat? And I thought it's fatigue. Fatigue is the threat because she and I were operating at depleted states and then kind of snipping at each other. Not that that's bad and and I don't believe in perfectionism, but I was able to honor the feeling and notice where it was. And then it was like, oh, okay. As a protector, got that DNA, that, that again, eight, Enneagram eight, challenger protector wiring oh, I, what I can do here is I can actually take on fatigue in the sense of like bring spaciousness and quietness and healing. I can do that. And if I would have ignored that fear and just tried to power through it or justify it or anything, I, I wouldn't see how clearly obvious it was that there was this, there was, it was, yes, it was an existential threat, sure, but still a threat. And what it was a threat to was peace. It was threat to connection. It was a threat to conscious connection and it's been transformative to be able to understand the source of where fear comes from and allow it allow it to speak to you it, it it's it probably is nothing but just to pause and go well what if it was mm. you know mm. um mm. anyway well it's always somewhat anticlimactic to go back to bound time and say well we're, we have to be done here this is the longest episode i've recorded i think uh and that's okay it's beautiful 
Um, thank you so much for this. So you're so welcome. For, you're thank so you welcome. for the work you're doing. I please, if you're listening to this, please buy Gareth's book. It is if 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 the whole world, if ten percent of the world read it, we'd have a different place. So. That would be 800 million people. And right. I'd be happy if 1% of the world read it. <laughs> Green big, baby. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and may I say one last thing? Of course, in, yes. In, in, and that is, thanks for, for what you're doing and trying to have meaningful conversations with people. The, um, I had a, uh, there was a, a, a youth pastor when I was, when I was younger who, his name is Adrian. He's, he's, he's one of the, the kindest people I've ever met. And I once heard him say, uh, he was speaking at the front of the church and he was, there was a change in his job and he was telling the congregation about the change in the job and, and stuff. And, um, uh, he said, I want you to know the only reason I'm talking, uh, the only reason I'm on this platform talking to you about this is because you pay my salary. And I want to be accountable to you. All your lives are just as important as as mine. And I would love to hear about your story and the changes in your life. And and if I paid your salary, I'd want you up on this platform to talk to talk about it. Something that's very and that, that really taught me something. And it's taken me a long time to, for the lesson to really work its way into me. It goes hand in hand with something that uh, another friend of mine, John O'Donoghue, uh, uh, said. He wanted to train people's fingers to unpick the knots that they had been tied up in. And that is very different than wanting to be a writer who stands on a platform and everybody looks at them and says, wow, this person has achieved some magic knowledge that we don't have. That's not true. What's, what's true, I think, of the best writing is, I mean, the best writing is, is like beyond the capacity of the rest of us to write, but we still feel recognized by it. I think the most ethical writing in this kind of genre of uh, hopefully you know creative nonfiction that helps people it's it's to help people feel recognized and to say you have a story too and you have the key to unlock yourself. Right. I am unlocking myself too, and then there's a degree to which we all have to do it uh, together. So thank you for reaching out to me for the conversation, Justin. Thank you for what you do, and to everybody listening. Um, I think we both want you to be able to unpick the knots that you've been tied up in and to help other people do the same. So yes. any conversation that helps that happen is a beautiful thing. And it's always a good to end the conversation with a reference to John O'Donoghue. So <laughs> yes, it is. may he rest in peace. So. May he rest in peace. I think <laughs> he does. You. I think he does. All right. Thank you.